Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So I have epic news. Um, you might want to like sit down for this or like get ready for this. Someone this week told me something about Hamilton that I didn't know. I know. I was surprised too. So backstory, I'm writing a book that uh, will one day be published by the grace and mercies of Jesus Christ our Lord. (laughs) And one of my uh, proofreaders is a New Testament scholar named uh, Eric Barreto, Dr. Eric Barreto. And uh, in my book, I have this line that references Hamilton that says, uh, the world turned upside down, which is, of course, a reference to the Battle of Yorktown. And uh, Dr. Barreto said, you know that this is a reference to Acts as well. The world turned upside down. Like, that was like a thing that the the Bible describes, the New Revised Standard Version translation, describes the disciples doing to the world. And so maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda is referencing that. And I'm like, a Bible reference in Hamilton the Musical that I didn't catch. Okay, I'm on board. So it was, it, it was like blew my mind. And, and I think it's such a great description because for those of you who did see Hamilton, Battle of Yorktown, super intense. The world is literally turning upside down. People are turning over furniture in slow motion. It's epic. The music is mounting. The light is going nuts. And like, that is the description of what the disciples were doing after the life of Jesus. Like the disciples were going out and it was that epic. The world was turning upside down as people were spreading the word of a liberative love that uh, that erases boundaries of power and creates a new type of society where everyone can be free. The world was turning upside down with the disciples. And so this cuts to the story where we are today, where Paul and Silas get arrested for practicing this type of world upturning ministry. And it's the, the Bible is very clear that they are put in the most secure, most secluded, hardest to escape spot. And it's like midnight in prison in this tough spot. They're in chains and they start to do what? pray and sing because sometimes Jesus doesn't make us free right away but sometimes Jesus puts a song on our heart that begins our freedom and so we sing and Christians have never stopped singing since then I just rewatched the movie Harriet which is so good and it was just reminded to me how how uh, songs in uh, in the slave era were both for spiritual hope as well as practical communication for how people can get free. And it's like, yeah, I think that's kind of what praise is always supposed to be. Like there is a certain pragmatic liberation that's supposed to come from it, but that pragmatic liberation can't come without a transformation of the heart. And of course, uh, the movie Harriet also shows how slaveholders got it all twisted. And they said, you know, like, you just keep singing, but stay slaves. Like, 
the singing is supposed to give you kind of this like false sense of hope, but, but stay slaves, just keep your head down and keep working. And, and then the 13th amendment came on, came along, uh, that, that said neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. In other words, the 13th Amendment got rid of slavery with one pretty significant loophole, which is that if it's a punishment for a crime, then slavery can be reinstated. And so, even when slavery was abolished, uh, the prison movement started coming in and it was like, we gotta arrest all these people who were previously slaves because they can stay slaves uh, in the chain gang. They can stay slaves in prisons instead. And all of this had some very sketchy uh, uh, um, co collusion with Christian theology. And it's one of the biggest historical examples of what I call Christendom. I call it, and also like, centuries of scholars call it Christendom, which is the wedding of the empire and Christian theology for the purposes of the empire. It's the appropriation of Christian images. And so uh, slavery and, and prisons all, were always saying, yeah, let's, let's appropriate uh, this uh, Christian idea, whatever, as long as we get to still have slaves. That was like a founding goal for prisons, right? And, uh, and, um, and it, it just strikes me as so odd because it's like, wow, y'all must not have read the book of Acts because in the book of Acts, if we are to ask the question of whether or not we can abolish prisons, we have some folks singing their liberation into existence, causing an earthquake that breaks the prison. <laughs> Abolition is one of the founding stories of Christianity. And I'll tell you what, like Paul was is one of the most significant Christian figures in all of history. If it wasn't for Paul, Christianity wouldn't have uh, spread in the way that it did. And so another way to say that is that if we didn't experience uh, prison abolition, then Paul would have still been in prison and Christianity wouldn't have been the same. So we kind of like owe the fact that we are even here in the first place because of prison abolition. And that's the power of songs. That's the power of prayer, right? Like, <laughs> I know that... Um, as we're in this like super awkward era of COVID and social distancing and all of this church being digital, that it's like easier and easier to be like, you know, I pretty much get Christianity. I pretty much get what New City is going to talk about. Like I pretty much get the point of church. So I'm just going to kind of miss it. or I'm just going to kind of sleep in and not worry about it. And then here comes Paul saying, until your prayers are breaking prisons, then we haven't been praising enough. <laughs> Until all of our collective prayers are breaking prisons, then Christians still have work to do. 
And so that's why we show up as a community, because we believe that prayer has that power. And of course, I know that there are lots of very kind Christians, perhaps some of them might be jumping in the comments right now, who are like, oh, Tyler, you, you know, we, we Christians, but we have to be kind of nice. And if we talk about that abolition thing, then, then we're not really being like kind nice Christians, but <laughs> which is like, okay, thank you. Also, what happens in Acts 16, 26? Whose chains get broken? It's not just Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are the ones praising, but everyone's chains gets broken. Paul and Silas were the only ones praising. They were the only ones who, at that point, may have even heard about the gospel. But the cumulative impact of their praise resulted in everyone's chains being broken. And I think that's kind of the model that New City Church is trying to go for. Like, we're not going to creepily manipulate everyone to sneakily get into church, but we're saying we need to practice the power of the gospel such that folks who don't even know us can be freed from the ways that we interact with the world. That's what we're going for. And sometimes it might not be nice. Sometimes it's going to be radical. It's going to create paradigm shifts because Jesus is the one who creates paradigm shifts. And it's like, by the way, I, I do think that Christians can be nice, but the niceties can never uh, uh, service the chains. You know, the niceties can never be another link that is bounding up our brothers and sisters and siblings. The niceness is, is, is to move towards healing once the chains are broken, right? So, um, so Paul ha, uh, is like breaking all these chains with their prayers. And um, it's, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, in this beginning of the service, in the beginning of the sermon series, I promised that this would be a non-naive Christian exploration of police abolition, a non-naive and Christian exploration of police abolition. And I wanna, I wanna fulfill my promise in a couple ways. First of all, we're talking about police abolition by talking about prison abolition, right? Like police and prison are like very deeply linked together concepts, especially with the advent of for-profit prisons, because now there is like a profit incentive for police to criminalize folks and make sure that prisons remain open and full of people, right? And so like this mass incarceration thing, which has been going on since like the law and order era of Reagan has been climbing, 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 uh, incentivizing police to be uh, sending people to prisons. And, um, and like mandatory minimum sentencing was part of that, which is like, 
requiring that um, that a certain amount of uh, punishment be doled out to the crime. It can't be contextualized or edited or anything. All of this history rolled up together such that the, the policing system and the, and the prison system have created a carceral state. And that's kind of what we're trying to deal with right now. Like that's what the sermon series is exploring. Because if we get, if we defund uh, police, if we abolish or get rid of police policing, but we don't ask any questions about the place that those police were sending people to, then we're just going to get a different type of person with a different color badge who's sending them to the same places, right? So, so this is why uh, that's important. Second of all, I did promise that this would be Christian, and I hope that uh, by now it's pretty clear that I believe with every fiber of my being that the act of worship is necessary for us to realize the society that God is calling us to. If we could do this through podcasts and cute Instagram posts that you can swipe through to learn five facts about prison abolition and, and campaigns even and amazing justice movements, then we would, New City Church would just dedicate our whole budget to that. But there is a type of transition that we have seen. There's a type of change that we have seen in people when worship, prayer, small groups, uh, spiritual practices, attending to scripture happen. And that's what we're trying to shift. And lastly, we promised that we would be non-naive. And I know that the idea of prison abolition sounds really radical. And it's like, Tyler, if we were to like actually open up all the prisons, like society would be chaos, right? And, and, I, and I return back to this story. And I think that there is a hint in the book of Acts about how we can be non-naive about prison abolition non-naive about prison abolition, because what we see Paul and Silas doing is creating the conditions for conversion. Paul and Silas walked up to the prison guard, the jailer, who was like, oh shoot, I just majorly messed up and I messed up so bad that, I mean, that jailer was about to kill himself. And Paul was like, whoa, 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 wait. What might feel like your biggest failure right now is actually going to be the biggest moment for God to break into your life. Let's talk about this for a second. And so she shares uh, some good news about how Jesus came to liberate people, how all the world is going to be made glad for that liberation, and how we have the opportunity to participate in that movement if we just start singing our songs. And eventually that jailer was like, I am converted. I am changed. I know that converted can sometimes be a little bit of a trigger word for folks, because it's like, oh my gosh, did... It's like Romans Road and like tracks and like all of this like Christian manipulation that's like trying to get people to just sign their name on the dotted line. Not unlike Ursula, the sea witch, and then ta-da, like they're converted to Jesus and then they move on and just like continue the industrial complex of trying to uh, get more and more people to sign up to be Christians. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about conversion, meaning something happening in your heart 
that so deeply convinces you that we can trust love, that we can trust the love of God to save us, that everything else stacked on top of that, every decision and lifestyle stacked on top of that is changed because conversion creates a certain type of earthquake in our hearts where all of a sudden all of the chains of what is going on are broken and we start to rise out of our prisons. That's what we're talking about here. And that's what Paul and Silas did in an incredibly expedited fashion. They had one conversation and the jailer was like, yep, I'm convinced. I'm yet to see like a two minute conversion. <laughs> but I still see that through weeks and weeks, through months and months, through prayer after prayer, there is a process happening that is slowly transforming people to identify as Christian. It kind of reminds me of in the movie Harriet, um, when Janelle Monet's character is talking about um, uh, how do you know when you sense God? Or what is it like to sense God? And Harriet says, sometimes it feels as sharp as a slap in the face. And sometimes it's like a dream that if you think too hard, you'll just forget about it right away. So you have to act right away. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of like faithfulness and conversion that Paul is working towards. And he didn't need brochures or tracks or manipulation because he had a story on his heart about how his life has changed so dramatically that other people started to see themselves into their story as well. So the jailer uh, is, is uh, converted because Paul uh, and Silas created the conditions for conversion. And then the jailer brings him to uh, his house and, and then goes on and, and, and does that. And speaking of conditions for conversion, one historical tidbit that like, I am just now starting to realize how huge of a deal this was, is that the Quakers, which is a branch of Christianity, in 1790, the Quakers came up with a radical idea that said, maybe it's possible for people who commit crimes to change. Uh, maybe reform is possible. And at the time, this was like a pretty radical idea because at the time, the, the concept of prisons was like, if someone commits a crime, that's it. They are permanently, it is a, it is a fundamental part of their being. And the Quakers were like, maybe the love of God is more fundamental to their, to their being than any bad decisions they make on top of that. And there is a way to change. And so in 1790, they created the Walnut Street Jail. And uh, it was the first one that was really trying to like ask this question, the first one in American history, that was trying to ask this question of what does reform look like? Now, uh, the Quakers were, uh, I think, were very well intended in, in uh, trying to be faithful to the Christian stream in that. It ended up being that their tactics weren't uh, exactly amounting to the type of change that they wanted. One of the things that they uh, tried or experimented with was they were looking at the other prisons and they're like, oh my gosh, prisons are so crowded and there's such squalid conditions and there's so much brutality in prisons what if we started to look at uh, prison more like uh, like a monastery and and people could kind of have like their own uh, like what monks have uh, these, these rooms to pray by themselves 
which are called cells. And so maybe we can create a, a, a prison a little bit more like everyone would have their cells. And maybe we'll call it a, a house of peni penitence, a penitentiary. And so the Quakers were like, maybe we're going to try this like monastery model of prison. Uh, uh, in the process, inventing solitary confinement. And uh, the difference they would find out between a monk and a person who is involuntarily put into a penitentiary is that the monks want the solitude and can make good use of the solitude and can create the conditions for the type of penitence that the Quakers were hoping for. And when you're involuntarily put into a penitentiary, it tends to just drive psychosis and so they started seeing all of a sudden like whoa 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 like this is not yielding the type of results that we were intending but by that time the larger prison industrial complex were watching this in Europe and the United States saw that and they're like wait solitary confinement is kind of like torture and we love torture because it punishes people and so we're going to use solitary confinement. We're going to appropriate solitary confinement, not for penitence or anything like that, but to threaten people with in prison to behave better. And so solitary confinement suddenly became the thing that was like for the worst of the worst. And there was no framework around any type of spiritual reform or anything like that. And which I think is kind of a snapshot of how Christians in the empire are going to kind of keep going throughout, throughout history. Like there's going to be innovation and then there's going to be appropriation of that innovation. And what we have to do as Christians is to create something even more compelling. And so, I mean, hello, that was in the 1800s. We've learned some things about human behavior and human psychology and what causes change. And so, like, what if we could honor that part of our tradition, not so much in tactics, but in the spirit of saying, like, we actually believe that reform is possible. We believe that the conditions for conversion are possible. And it's our job as a society to figure out how we can go about creating the conditions for people to feel free from the chains in their own life. And I'm not talking about like houses of, um, uh, what is, I'm not talking about houses of proselytization in terms of like, we just got to get people to convert to Jesus. I'm talking about like houses of good news, whether or not Jesus is explicitly named houses of transformation, houses of reform, houses where people can actually change. And they probably don't look like the for-profit zoos that our prisons are right now. But I'm just saying that Christians have already demonstrated that we can disrupt how crime is managed. Even American Christians, like in this country. So why shouldn't Christians who believe so deeply that Jesus is the one who breaks chains be the ones to start breaking some chains now? Why can't we continue to be on the forefront of prison abolition? Well, I think uh, I really was moved and inspired uh, by the sermon that we heard last week by Heidi, our intern from Duke, 
put a, a flame emoji in the comments if you were inspired by Heidi's sermon. It's a real treat. Y'all got to go back and watch it. It was super good. It was about forgiveness and it was super good. One of the things that really inspired me in this conversation from Heidi's is that, like, we won't believe, like, truly believe that human change is possible until we change ourselves. And in Heidi's sermon, it was like, we won't believe that actual forgiveness is liberating until we ourselves practice forgiveness or at least release, right? And it's kind of like, that's the thing is like all of the progressives and all of the, the folks who are advocating for, for prison abolition are like, reform is possible, but that is like an intellectual concept until you yourself deeply in your body have a certain type of heart transformation that shows you that change truly is possible. My friends, if you want to start breaking down prisons, you're going to have to start breaking down some internal prisons. You're going to have to break some chains within. And that means creating the conditions for conversion. It means converting your captors, starting with yourself, starting with destructive or oppressive bad habits, starting with internalized racism of all things, and starting to see that if we offer ourselves up to God and just stick with the song that is written on our hearts, then slowly, day by day, we can be embodiments of the liberating love of Jesus that we so dearly want for the world. If you are ready for this, type amen in the comments.